Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the History Chicks. Today's episode is going to be a little different from our usual format, inspired by our episode on Lillian Gilbreth, who, among other things, invented the step trash can. We thought we'd bring you the stories of four women who invented things that we use each and every day. Chapter 1 The Dishwasher Josephine Cochran had a problem, or rather, three problems in the shape of her three kitchen maids. These wanton wretches insisted upon chipping up the heirloom china after every dinner party, to the point that Mrs. Cochran forbade them from touching the dishes ever again. She would wash them herself. So, the morning, and afternoon, and evening, after a fabulous event, there you'd find her, among a mountain of dishes, with red hands from the rough soda used to clean them, and that same sense of remorse that most modern mothers have after they take away screen time. What have I done? Who am I punishing exactly? Washing dishes gives you time to think, and maybe it was all that steam coming out of her ears that gave her the idea to look around for some kind of machine to deal with this. Wasn't there a machine for everything these days? To her surprise, there wasn't one. Well, not a good one. And so, Mrs. Cochran said to her empty kitchen, Well, if no one's going to invent a dishwashing machine, I suppose I'll just have to do it myself. But I've gotten ahead of myself. Let me tell you the story. Josephine Garris was born in Ashtabula County, Ohio, on March 8, 1839, the youngest of the two daughters of John and Irene Fitch Garris. Inventing ran in the family, by the way, Mama's own grandfather held an important steamboat patent, and Papa himself was a civil engineer who had invented a kind of hydraulic pump. So, Josephine inherited this sort of thing from both sides. Papa moved the family to Valparaiso, Indiana, where he was the county land surveyor and was a man of some means. He sent his daughters to the private Valparaiso Seminary and was likely a man of some influence in this town of about 500 inhabitants. Mama Irene died during Josephine's school years, and I'm sorry to say I can't tell you when exactly, um, even her headstone has no years on it. When Josephine was 17, her school burnt down, which was not that unusual in this age of kerosene lamps, and Papa sent her to live with her sister Irene, who had married and moved to Shelbyville, Illinois. At 19, she met and married William Apperson Cochran, a man of 27 who had definitely sown his oats as a gold miner and world traveler, but by the time we meet him was a successful dry goods merchant and local politician. They had a son named Hallie, who sadly died at the age of two, and a daughter named Catherine, and Josephine settled into the lifestyle of a wealthy socialite. Mansion, battalion of servants, dinner parties, and a bit of a name change. She spelled Cochrane with an E at the end, which did make William roll his eyes a bit. Uh, Long-time listeners will recall that Nellie Bly was an Elizabeth Cochrane with an added E. I guess it was considered to be fancier or more refined with the E, like Smith versus Smythe. Or Daisy Bucket on the BBC, who insists on being called Daisy Bouquet. Also fancy was Mrs. Cochrane's China. From the 17th century, she'd make sure to make clear. A couple of ceramics experts I asked about this agreed this was probably Chinese export porcelain, that is to say, blue and white, or green and white. Though they seemed a little surprised that a Midwestern American would have this kind of thing at all. Sister Irene seems to have joined the DAR, so we are looking at the right people. Whether it really was that old, or just regular China with an E on it, if you know what I'm saying, it was precious to Josephine Cochran, who we last saw standing in her kitchen, covered in a wet apron and irritation. 
There were machines, at least two prominent ones invented by men, but they relied on brushes to get the job done. Brushes? Most mistresses of the day wouldn't even let their servants use cloths on the dishes. For real. So, certainly no one was going to fix the problem of chipping dinnerware by banging it around with wooden brushes. You can forget it. So one day, facing hundreds of pieces of china to get through, Josephine had had it. I suppose I'll just have to invent this myself, she said. She sat down at a table, and within half an hour, she had her basic concept. Some sort of a rack that would hold firm on the dishes so they didn't joggle around, and then hot, pressurized water to get them clean. Over time, she kept working on it, refining it, and getting pretty passionate about it. Her husband regarded this whole thing as some kooky obsession for a woman with too little to occupy her mind. He was sort of a rising star in the local Democratic Party. You know, please direct your energy into calling and charity work networking, we'd say now. Some sources say that he was an alcoholic, and other sources merely mention poor health. But Mr. Cochran was ordered by a doctor to go take a rest cure, and off he went, not accompanied by his wife. He came back sicker than he went, and two weeks later, he died, leaving Josephine a widow at 36. You'd think he would have left her well off, but in fact, this epic lifestyle had been a house of cards. The debts nearly equaled the money, and Josephine was left with about $1,500. Now, for a sense of perspective, those kitchen maids from before were paid around $75 a year. But still, to be left with a modern $35,000 total as a person with no work experience or possibility of earning a living, that had to be a scary proposition. So now, her thought was, she'd go ahead and pursue this dishwasher for real. But she didn't know anything about, you know, mechanical engineering, exactly. And everyone she took it to for fabrication tried to just mansplain to her why her design wouldn't work. A quote from Josephine herself. They insisted on doing things every way but mine until they had to admit at last that my way was the best way. At last she found a willing assistant, a positive one, named George Butters, who was a mechanic on the Illinois Central Railroad. He came in his free time to work on making this dishwasher with her in a shed in her backyard. The original garage origin storyline, like Apple or Disney or Mattel, they patented their design in 1886 and installed the very first prototype in her kitchen and then asked for volunteers among her friends to beta test one in their own kitchens. Everyone that had one seemed to love it, but Josephine just couldn't crack the home market. She put the blame squarely on, quote, "...husbands who think nothing of installing comptometers in their own offices to make their own work easier but resist similar needs of their wives." A comptometer, by the way, is this new calculator that came out the year she was trying to sell her machine. I'll put a picture of the comptometer on the Pinterest board. The fact was, though, that Josephine's dishwasher was $75. That's the same price as a traditional maid who would presumably do more tasks than just this one thing. And most houses just did not have the hot water heaters to make this work. And more baffling or infuriating to Josephine was the feedback from the women who reported back that washing dishes was actually sort of relaxing and sociable and, no offense, but the dishwasher's pretty noisy. To which she responded, Well, women have not learned to think of their time and their comfort is worth money. So Josephine had another plan, a backup plan, a commercial dishwasher. Practically speaking, the hand crank system she had wasn't going to work in a large-scale operation like a restaurant. So she had some more challenges, converting to a steam-driven motor and adding an automatic rinse cycle before you'd just pour a tea kettle of hot water over everything. But the biggest challenge was overcoming the whole woman-in-business thing. There's a hotel in downtown Chicago called the Palmer House, which is still there, uh, right downtown. I had a lovely Thanksgiving there once, by the way. Highly recommend. 
She had a connection and an introduction to the manager, probably through Mrs. Palmer herself, who ran in the same sociable circles. And Josephine called on the manager of the hotel to sell her commercial machine for use in their giant kitchen. And succeeded! Now her second call, the Sherman Hotel, was a cold call. Ah, that was a lot more challenging. She said, I was so afraid to cross the big lobby by myself, I had never crossed a room without a man, my husband, or my father. Much less ever had a business meeting. I'm, I'm amazed. But she got them to commit, and this is a very prominent place. The who's who of everywhere passed through here. And something magical was happening in Chicago. The Columbian Exposition of 1893, otherwise known as the Chicago World's Fair, was gearing up to feature products from all over the world in a fabulous place called the White City. Nine of Josephine's commercial washers were ordered to be installed in the pavilions to handle the enormous amount of dishes that were produced by 150,000 visitors a day to the fair's restaurants. So she contracted them out to be built to her specifications. And she won an award during the exhibition for her machine for the best mechanical construction, durability, and adaptation to its line of work. So she opened a factory to manufacture these. The company was named the Garris Cochran Dishwashing Machine Company, and George Butters, the original worker, was the boss. A neener to all those other non-believers, by the way. He did all right for himself. Josephine Cochran became a selling fool. She sold to hotels, to restaurants, and department stores all over the country, and she'd go out to oversee installation and training. When my husband uh, once owned a wood-fired pizza place, the oven they ordered from Italy, and when it arrived, it arrived with a guy, a guy uh, who, at the beginning, would tell the contractors how to install it properly, and then he'd go away somewhere, and then he'd come back a week before you open to train the cooks. So that's kind of what Josephine Cochran would do with her dishwashers. This from a woman who only a few years ago was afraid to cross a hotel lobby. In the last few years um, before she died, this company was making quite a tidy profit. But after a year of unexplained illness, which she did work through, Josephine Cochran died on August 3rd, 1913, of either a stroke or exhaustion. Some years after her death, a company called Hobart bought her company. And I can tell you, as the wife of a chef, they are big in the restaurant industry. Hobart had started out as a place that made industrial motors. And then they got into a kitchen mixer that they ended up selling to the Navy for use on all the ships. So it paralleled the rise of Josephine Cochran's machine. They started first in an industrial application. And then... Those mixers were sold by an all-female workforce door-to-door as the KitchenAid Mixer, the classic. Lots of us have one in our own homes even now. The Home Products Division of Hobart became KitchenAid, a name we're all familiar with. Now, the first successful home dishwasher did not really come onto the market until the post-war boom of the late 40s and early 50s, but Josephine had made it all possible. I am going to put all the links for this chapter on our Pinterest page. In addition to the one for women inventors, don't miss the other board called Chicago World's Fair 1893. And make sure to watch for the videos. There are so many videos of early washing machines in operation on YouTube. I had no idea it was such a thing. So I will post a couple and you can find the rest. The History Chicks is sponsored by Audible.com. 
the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from. You can download a free audiobook today when you sign up for a free trial of their service. You know all of those Harry Potter references that we keep sprinkling through the episodes? Well, Harry Potter has finally arrived on Audible, and it couldn't be easier to get hold of the Sorcerer's Stone or the Goblet of Fire to play during all of your upcoming holiday road trips. Just go to our website, thehistorychicks.com, and follow the Audible link to Hogwarts, or Wonderland, or Narnia, or Pan Am. And thanks for supporting our show. Chapter 2, The Coffee Filter I hate lumpy coffee. Every morning my husband gets up before I do and makes a pot. Every morning he drinks one cup from the top and leaves me the rest. Usually, as the morning goes on, I'll drain the pot. But sometimes I get to the last couple of glugs in the last mug and it happens. Instead of savoring them good to the last drop, I will get a mouthful of grounds. Lumpy coffee. It's total user error on my husband's part, but thanks to Melita, it's one that doesn't happen to most people. This is Susan, and this is the story of Melita Bentz. Melita, what a pretty name, and hipster parents, it's perfectly poised for a resurgence. Not only is it pretty different and melodic, but it's the original Greek form of Melissa, and for those who like their offspring names to be historically meaningful and personal... Melita Bentz invented the modern coffee filter. We can thank her for unlumping most people's coffee. Amelia Auguste Melita Liebscher was born on January 31, 1873 in Dresden, Germany. Her father was a book publisher, or some say a bookstore owner, and her grandparents owned a brewery. At the time of Melita's childhood, it was known as the Florence of the Elbe River. It was a beautiful city, old, gorgeous architecture and art. It attracted painters, artists, writers, philosophers, and porcelain decorators. That's where you've heard the word before, Dresden porcelain. It refers to a style of painting and decorating the porcelain. There really weren't any porcelain manufacturing companies in Dresden, but the decorating studios were prolific. I'm sure you'd recognize it if you saw it. It's pretty urns and vases and figurines that have a delicate lace-like appearance to them. It was actually lace dipped into the porcelain. They're marked on the bottom with a little blue crown that says Dresden. Anyway, back to Melita. Melita married Johann Emil Hugo Benz. He would set off to work each day as a department store manager, and Melita stayed home as a homemaker. She was a mom to two sons, Willie and Horst. At the beginning of the 1900s, coffee was a global beverage. Coffee beans were originally found in Africa, where they were ground and rolled into paste with animal fat and eaten, like little energy bombs. Ethiopians later took the berries and fermented them into wine. (laughs) That sounds too good to be true. Coffee and wine, together, two, two, two drinks in one. Across the Red Sea from Africa is the Arabian Peninsula. There, beans also grew, and when in the 11th century, coffee was first made into a hot drink. The word legend or myth often accompanies the beginning of this coffee discovery story. A goat herder saw that his herd had become more lively when they ate the fruit of a certain bush. He tasted the fruit, liked the kick, danced with his goats, and was spotted by some monks who wanted in on the mysterious berries. These monks, according to the story, began boiling them and using the resulting beverage to keep them awake during night-long religious rituals. By the time the Bentz family in Dresden was making their morning cup, coffee was a globally addicted beverage, and mostly it was a big business. During Melita's life, one of the most common ways to make coffee was with a newfangled invention called a percolator, patented in 1889. 
We've all seen them. They're still in use today. You put the water in the bottom of the pot. Inside the pot is a metal tube that goes up to a porcelain or a metal basket where you put the coffee grounds. You put the lid on it, put it on the burner, and when it boils, the water goes up the tube, down over the coffee grounds, and creates coffee. The problem with a percolator was it often overbrewed the beverage, and which made it really bitter. And sometimes it took so long to make that by the time it was done, the coffee was cold. The other popular method involved pouring hot water over a linen bag that held the ground beans. It made pretty good coffee, but the problem was that the bag needed to be washed frequently. And when you did get a new bag, it was very slow to let the, the beverage drip through it. Now, both methods left one huge problem, lumpy coffee. There were grounds left in the bottom of the cup, so that meant there were black dots on Melita's teeth, little bits sticking to her gums. It was kind of a problem. And in a modern city like Dresden, surely someone could come up with a new way. That someone was Melita Bentz. One day, fed up with those coffee grounds and lumpy coffee, she poked holes into the bottom of a coffee pot. Then she took a piece of blotting paper, you know, that thick absorbent paper that was used to absorb excess ink from dip pens or early ink pens. She cut a circle to fit inside the pot, put the grounds in it, put a cup underneath it, poured boiling water over the whole thing, and the result? on lumpy coffee. It wasn't bitter. It was still hot. And best of all, there was nothing in her teeth. She quickly got herself to Berlin and filed the paperwork for a patent and was granted one on June 20th, 1908. Her invention was called <clears throat> filter top device lined with filter paper. Six months later, she and Hugo registered their business and began production in a room in their apartment. They contracted with a local tinsmith to make the pots and made the paper filters themselves at home. I'll put a picture of the early coffee pots that Melita, it's not, doesn't really look anything like the coffee pots we use now. It looks more like maybe like a camp pot. It's smaller and, well, I'll just put the picture up and you'll see. Soon, Hugo left his job at the department store to work on marketing. He did it like a lot of businesses now by demonstrating the product in, in the stores. He'd go in to the store windows and make coffee. Eventually, he outsourced that job to some women who did exactly the same thing. Now at home, Melita had a different strategy. She was having home coffee parties to help get the word out. That sounds really familiar as I sit looking at a whole bunch of invites to candle and scents and dishware parties. A lot like Lillian Gilbreth, while she was working to get the company off the ground, Melita gave birth to another child, a daughter named Herta. The business soon outgrew the apartment room, then a couple other locations. But in 1914, World War One broke out. Hugo was drafted into the army. Paper and metals were rationed and used for the war effort and coffee imports were banned. All of this ground business to a halt. Once the war was over, the Bentz family got back to business and the expansion was fairly quick. Soon the name was registered as Bentz and Son. And Melita backed off a bit from the business but kept her hand in enough to make sure that her sons were treating their ever-growing number of employees fairly. She made sure that vacations were introduced, that the work week was limited to five days, and competitive salaries were given all around. And in a very unique for the times move, they created an aid fund for their employees. Melita and Hugo retired in 1932, and William Horst expanded the company. Those cone-shaped filters that we know of as Melita filters now, those were not even invented until 1937. There was a 12-year slowdown in production during World War II, and they kind 
kind of limped their business through the war with makeshift production facilities. But after the war ended, they got right back into business. And again, expansion was fairly quick. It was a good business. In 1946, Hugo died and Melita followed him on June 29th, 1950, leaving her legacy to coffee drinkers worldwide and a very excellent baby name. Chapter 3, The Bra Necessity is the mother of invention. That's the classic sentiment, but sometimes you need an able assist from vanity. This is the story of Mary Phelps Jacobs, born on April 20, 1891. She was the oldest child, and only daughter, of the three children of William Hearn Jacob and Mary Phelps. Papa and Mama were both descended from old New England families. They were the right people, with a capital R and a capital P. I mean, seventh generation here. Even though Mary always insisted that her family was, quote, not rich, they had multiple houses, horses, sailboats, and any wish of the daughter of the house was fulfilled. I had everything I ever wanted, she said. So maybe compared to some of her parents' friends, she felt a little underprivileged, but to everyone else on the earth looking in, this was a dream of a childhood. Since our Mary had the exact same name as her mother, to friends and family she was always known as Polly, a surprisingly common nickname for Mary, as I'm finding. She went to Miss Chapin's school in New York City, a very exclusive establishment that still, I think, cost $35,000 a year, if you have it. Papa died when Polly was 17, and she went off to boarding school in Connecticut at Rosemary Hall, where she was simply known as Jacob, because at Rosemary Hall, like Hogwarts, everyone was called by their last name. And where, in 1910, after the headmistress had had lunch with the wife of the founder of the Boy Scouts, Lady Baden-Powell herself is supposed to have made Polly Jacob America's very first Girl Scout. How's that for something I didn't know before I began research? She graduated at 19, and girls at Rosemary Hall had to pass the Bryn Mawr entrance exam in order to graduate, so that's no mean feat. Um, she has some brain there. And then it was time for the season. Polly came out herself, of course, and then it was nonstop. Balls and Ivy League dances up till the wee hours and sleeping until noon to start all over again. And it was at 19 that the inventor's thunderbolt struck. Polly was dressing for yet another dance, and this time, a wardrobe malfunction annoyed her so badly that she felt she had to do something. Her corset, you've seen Kate Winslet's in Titanic, her long, squeezy, uncomfortable underwear was visible through the sheer fabric of her expensive dress, and the corset cover actually showed at the top. Not acceptable. So Polly and her lady's maid contrived a solution for this fashion disaster using two handkerchiefs, some stout cording... This was a proto-underwire. I've seen photos of Polly and um, probably a necessary attribute. And uh, also some ribbon. They made an undergarment that was supportive but not restrictive and didn't ruin the line of her dress. Hooray! Now someone more concerned with the proprieties probably would not have dared to do it. But when you're brought up to believe you can do no wrong, it gives you a certain amount of confidence. And so off she went to the dance. And the ladies crowded her to find out what on earth she had on that let her move like that. And no monoboob, although I don't think they use that word, but a natural form, should I say. You know, make me one, make me one, they said. Note to listeners, when the friends clamor for something you make, there's probably gold in them thar hills. It was when she got a request from a complete stranger offering her a dollar for her contraption that she thought she'd better move on this. 
and she received a patent for the backless brassiere in November of 1914. My favorite part of the application is, it may be worn by persons engaged in violent exercise like tennis. Now, there were earlier competitors, of course. Even as early as the Civil War, there'd been bra-like garments for sale. Some designs for bras were even being mass-produced. Yet her design was suitable for all sizes and allowed the wearer to wear plunging necklines and backless dresses, and she was very much ahead of the fashion here. At 20, the year after her major invention, Polly married Dick Peabody, a man from an even more old money family than hers, socially acceptable and very well-educated, but sort of cold, to her anyway. They had two children, William and Pauline, which means little Polly, and when war broke out, Dick sort of gratefully went to the war, where he pretty much lived the life of a single man about town. Polly filed a document with the state of Massachusetts that stated she was a married woman, starting a business with her own, not her husband's, money, and began the fashion form Brazier Company in Boston. She had to let the authorities in on that fact. Just let that sink in. Otherwise, I think he might have been able to sell it out from under her. Oh, how far we've come. After the war, Dick had a giant drinking problem. Curiously, also had a bell installed in their house that was connected to the local fire department so he could be alerted um, and watch fires burn by following the fire department out there. Super eccentric. When Polly was asked at 28 to chaperone a group of young people on a picnic, she fell in love, or was it hmm, violent attraction, let's just say, to a 22-year-old member of the party named Harry Crosby. They began an affair, and society was appalled. Uh, Harry, at one point, said, I'll kill myself if you can't marry me. Oh, that should be a red flag right there, girl, but whatever. It took two more years, but Polly was allowed to divorce Dick at last, and she married Harry Crosby just as soon as the bare minimum of propriety had been achieved, about six months. Now, Harry had a trust fund of about $165,000 a year and really hated the thought of his wife being in business. That's yucky. I don't like it. It's gross. It's low. And he convinced her to shut down the fashion form brassiere company, and she sold her patent for a pittance to the Warner Brothers corset company. And eventually, those Warner Brothers, Warner, you know, still a company, would make 15 or so million dollars off the patent that they paid her only $1,500 for. And really, that is where the inventor part of her story ends. But I would love to give you some highlights of the rest of this roller coaster of a life. And honestly, some of this might be uncomfortable to explain to children. So if you have to skip ahead to chapter four, I completely understand. Words, concepts, follow, etc. You've been warned. Uh, give it about six minutes. Here we go. Harry convinced her to change her name to Caress. Uh, he wanted her to change it to Clitoris. So... That's the least of two alarming choices. They eventually ended up naming a dog Clitoris and told their small daughter that um, it was a Greek goddess. <laughs> they didn't want to explain it either. And Harry and Caress Crosby had a famously open marriage. They moved to Europe and became enmeshed in the art scene in Paris with all the wild behavior, drug-taking, and eccentricity you can think of. Being carried naked around a party on a giant platter might have been the mildest thing that happened. <laughs> They um, decided among them that they would commit suicide together in 1942. It's when the Earth was going to be closest to the sun, and so they're going to go through all their money ahead of time and make sure to get down to zero by then and set about doing it. Um, couture clothes, horse racing, gambling, buying of castles, spending of money wantonly, 
Caress wrote some books of poetry, the first ones decidedly, you know, rhyming love with dove, decidedly mediocre. Houghton Mifflin published them, but ultimately, Harry and Caress decided to begin their own publishing company. Editions Narcisse, which they later changed to Black Sun Publishing, uh, was ahead of the fashion here, too. They printed works by the likes of Hemingway, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Lawrence Stern, Archibald MacLeish, in anticipation of their future fame. Now, in 1929, Harry died in a suicide pact, but with his lover Josephine, not Caress, who went back to the name Mary, understandably, and back to publishing, where she put her money behind paperback books, long before they were common. Most books were treasures, to be treated with respect, so who who would buy these kind of books? People just didn't believe in them. Not yet. She's ahead of her time. Mary had a hard time getting stores to carry them. What else? She wrote pornography for a client of Henry Miller's, very successfully, according to the customer. She scandalized America with her open affair with the African-American actor, Canada Lee. She married an attractive 'er ne'er-do-well, 18 years younger than she, who crashed her car, spent her money, and sometimes just disappeared. She's just not a good picker of husbands. She hung out with the likes of Salvador Dali and Buckminster Fuller, Anais Nen, and the aforementioned Henry Miller. She divorced the young one and moved to Washington, D.C., where she opened an art gallery. She published a quarterly magazine that was literally a who's who of avant-garde writers and artists, and bought a castle near Rome in which she planned to create an artist colony and writer's retreat. There is so much more, enough for a full episode later, I think. I, I hate to have to keep it short. So, anyway, toward the end of her life, Mary was asked about the invention of the bra, and she said, well, it's not as important to the world as, say, the steamboat. But yes, that was mine. Now, watch, do watch, episode 311 of Drunk History makes a great point about this. You know, how many of you own a steamboat? Hmm. Mary died on January 24th, 1970, at age 78, and Time magazine lauded her as, quote, the literary godmother to the lost generation of writers in Paris. So the bra and literary godmother, those are two pretty great legacies. For more specifics on her life, until we can get around to doing a full episode, I recommend that you read the autobiography that she wrote called The Passionate Years. So thanks for the bra, Mary Phelps Jacob, and thanks for Hemingway too. Chapter 4, Wi-Fi and GPS, at least an integral part of them. What do you call a woman who seems to have it all? She's beautiful, brainy, accomplished, staring, sexy, and self-confident. How about Hedy Lamar? Hedvig Eva Maria Kiesler was born on November 9, 1914, in Vienna, Austria. She was the first and only child of successful banker Emil and his concert pianist wife Gertrude, who went by Trudy. Hetty's childhood was exactly what you would imagine as an only in love child of wealthy parents. She didn't lack for anything. She traveled with her parents all over Europe. They got her tutors beginning at age four. She was remarkably bright and learned several languages in ballet. Her mother taught her the piano and later she attended private girls school. Her father adored her. It's simple as that. He would take her for walks and tell her stories. He'd read her fairy tales. And when Hetty asked him how things work, he would tell her. Streetcars, printing presses, whatever it was, if she asked, he would tell her how it worked. And he didn't dumb it down either. She was 
fascinated by these conversations. Now, if Papa was a softy who overindulged his daughter, Mama had a bit more of a stricter hand. She was worried that Hetty would become spoiled and, by her own admission, underemphasized praise and flattery, hoping to balance out her husband's adoration. It should probably be noted that the Kiesler family was Jewish. In pre-World War II Vienna, it wasn't a big deal, but Hetty did actually keep it a secret for most of her life. So what's a young girl who has a stage set up under her father's desk, who acts out fairy tales with her dolls, and who begins to mime people around her to do? Hetty had always imagined herself as an actress and took every opportunity to pursue it, a lot of them behind her parents' back. As young ladies from wealthy families are wont to do, Hetty was sent to a Swiss finishing school, which she promptly ran away from and went home to Vienna. She headed straight for the city's largest movie studio and talked herself into a job as a script girl. Was it her looks or her self-confidence? It certainly wasn't her experience because she didn't have any. But once inside the studio, she quickly auditioned for a part in a movie, a minor part, but she got it script girl to actress in one day. Of course, the next task ahead of her was to tell her parents that this was her dream and she's about to make it come true. But how do you tell your parents that? Hey, mom, dad, I know I'm 16 and I know I'm dropping out of school to become an actress, but that's okay, right? Over time, she gave slightly conflicting accounts of how tough a sell it was, but it all came down to the same result. How could her parents deny their princess her dream? They knew she loved acting, and she was only 16. Maybe it's something she would drop. Nope. Her first $5 bit part led to another bigger role and another. She was quickly labeled as the most beautiful girl in the world. She acted in some plays, but movies was where she wanted to be, and stardom was her goal. She seemed to be on her way and was even being noticed by people far outside of Austria or even Europe. The New York Times mentioned her in a review of a movie that she was in. At 17, she was offered a career-changing part, a lead role in a Czech film named Ecstasy. Yes, it was a love story. She was still a minor, but cast in the role of Eve, a woman in a stifling marriage who has an affair. Ecstasy premiered in 1933. Hetty was 18 by the time, but the film showed her 17-year-old self not only swimming nude, but running naked through the woods after her horse and being discovered by a man who hands her a really cute jumpsuit, which she puts on, and later in the film, she and he have a very artistically shot love scene. It was the first time that a woman had reached that level of happiness in a movie. It was, like I said, artistically filmed, but... It caused quite a scandal. As soon as her parents saw the finished film, she realized it was probably not her best move. She claims to have told her father something like, teenagers often do crazy, stupid things to look more experienced than they are. My dad saw me kissing a boyfriend once, and I was mortified and embarrassed. I can only imagine the hurt that was in Hetty's father's eyes. But rather than hide out from scandal and drop from acting, Hetty continued to act. Her first role after that was a play, and Hetty got back on track as a serious actor. It also brought the attention of a Fritz Mendel. Fritz was 33, not tall, heavy, I would say doughy would be a good way to describe him. But what did he have going for him? He was the third richest man in Austria. His money was made from arms manufacturing, but he was known as a womanizer and had already divorced once. He was also known as a ruthless businessman. 
But I guess when you're dealing weapons to the Nazis, you have to be. Hetty was at first not impressed, so Fritz went on the attack. He weaseled an invitation to dinner from her mother. Then that night, Hetty was rude to him, which, of course, only got him going even more, and he began a full-on courtship assault. Fritz tried the wine-and-dine approach, but no go. Then he began to appeal to Hetty's intellectual side. He showed her that he was a strong man in business. He showed her that he had a charming side. And he showed her that he had brains. That was about all it took. Hetty was in love, and Fritz had his trophy wife. The honeymoon was over pretty quickly, but by then it was too late. 19-year-old Hetty was forbidden to act. Fritz was going around scooping up as many copies of ecstasy as he could get his hands on and destroying them. She was a bird in a gilded cage. A cage that looked like a city house, three hunting lodges, and a yacht. But she was guarded all the time and pretty much treated like the doll Fritz thought she was. She called that time her prison of gold. Part of her new life required her to sit at dinner parties and look pretty. But she was still the intelligent woman who liked to know how things worked. So she would sit, appearing to be bored, while talk of weapons and submarines and missiles and radio frequencies was going on around her. She listened to everything. And she also kept her eye open for a way to escape her suffocating marriage. Hetty told quite a few versions of her escape story, and every single one of them sounds like a movie plot. The one you hear a lot is that she drugged a maid, stole her uniform, escaped to Paris with only the clothes on her back, filed for divorce, then went on to London, and then the United States. The truth probably was a little less tame, but still movie plot-like. It involved an affair with an author who was maybe mentoring her and how to reclaim her life. Um, It involved a sly appeal to one of Fritz's closest friends that, as she knew, would become newspaper fodder. And it led to several fights with Fritz, but it also led to her side of the story being out in public. Finally, a perfectly timed hunting trip on Fritz's part gave her the opportunity she needed. She packed as many of her clothes and jewels as she could into several pieces of luggage and left for London, far from escaping in the middle of the night with only the clothes on her back. In London, she met, of course, because this is Hedy Lamar and these things seem to have worked out for her quite a bit, Louis B. Mayer of MGM Studios. He offered her a contract fairly quickly, which didn't quite meet with what Hedy expected, so she rejected it, even though Hollywood and a contract with MGM was exactly what she was working towards. So she kept working. She managed to book herself on the same ship that was bringing Mayer and his wife back to the United States, and in true Hollywood fashion, Our smart, bold, and clever heroine landed in New York with a contract. She got the deal she wanted, although one of the conditions was that she changed her last name from Kiesler. German was kind of difficult to say, and Germany wasn't exactly a favored nation with a lot of Americans. She was divorcing Mandel, so that last name was out. Mayer liked the name of a recently deceased actress who he was quite fond of, Barbara Lamar. So Hedy Lamar she became. It was October of 1937, and she was in Hollywood learning English by watching movies. Within a year, she was making movies of her own, and her first, just as she would have planned it, was a movie that made her a star. Women began to copy her look. They dyed their hair dark. They parted it in the middle. It was long and wavy. Men were very attracted to her looks as well. She worked on quite a few movies and by 1944 was beginning to be bored of playing the same glamorous role in various movies with the biggest movie stars of the time. Tracy, Gable, Stewart, Powell. I know, 
the world's smallest violin, Hetty, right? But she wanted to be offered serious acting parts that she wasn't being offered. Everything seemed to be focused on her beauty. About this time, she met her second husband, Jean Markey, and married him. They adopted a baby boy named James. Jean was charming, but the two had very separate lives and they were always busy. The marriage only lasted two years. But that's okay, because four years after that, she married British actor John Loder. By this point in time, the U.S. had entered World War II. Hetty was horrified, as were many people, by the German submarine attacks, especially one on a boat that was carrying British children to Canada for safety. Now, unlike a lot of stars, Hetty liked to stay home. No partying for her. She had a drawing board at her house, and she liked to invent things. She didn't have anything that worked yet. <laughs> Some bouillon-style cubes that you dropped into water and they became soda. She made improvements to Kleenex boxes and traffic lights, but nothing that actually worked. But still, trying to solve these problems was a characteristic that she had, and the question, how to stop the submarines, ignited that characteristic. While she was mulling this over, she did what many stars of the time were doing and helping out in the war effort by selling war bonds and by entertaining the troops. She was very good at selling war bonds and one night set a record by selling $7 million worth of them. Hetty met musician George Antile. He was known as the bad boy of music, and in addition to composing music and writing movie scores, he was kind of an expert on player pianos. Um, some of his pieces had numerous player pianos that were working together to create the composition. She and I and Tile began to talk about the war and how to help, specifically how to stop the torpedoes. Now, Hetty had retained a lot of information that she picked up in her Mandel days, what was happening was that the Germans were figuring out what radio signal the boats and, or the airplanes were firing the torpedoes from, and they were jamming that frequency. What, the two decided, if the plane and the torpedoes worked in unison, kind of like George's player pianos? And what if while they were working in unison, they skipped from one radio frequency to the next? So that it would be impossible for the Germans to know what frequency they were on, impossible then to jam it, and the torpedoes would hit more of their targets. Through much trial and error and quite a few unworkable plans, the two finally came upon a solution, and in June of 1941, they filed for a patent for a machine called the Secret Communication System. In 1942, they received that patent. They sent their plans to the Navy, but bureaucracy is a long process, and by the time the plans passed to the real decision makers, the U.S. was deep into World War II. Mid-fighting was no time to be developing new technology for guided torpedoes when they were already stocked and trained with unguided ones, and that worked some of the time. There also seemed to be some confusion about the size of the control device. The Navy somehow got it in their heads that it was too bulky to fit into a torpedo. But in truth, the mechanism wasn't much bigger than a matchbox. Hetty and George gave, not sold, their plans to the Defense Department and went on with their lives. The technology that they developed would be used by the military, but not until 1962, after their patent had expired. Hetty had another child, a son with Loder, but mid-pregnancy she filed for divorce. She got custody of the children, and between 1951 and 1965, she was married and divorced three more times. George died of a heart attack in 1959 at the age of 58. The last of Hetty's over 30 movies was made in 1958. Then she kind of hopped a train for Eccentric Town. She lived a while as a result of several lawsuits that she brought when she felt that her name or image was being exploited. 
She had several unsuccessful plastic surgeries that made her very reclusive. She spent most of her time uh, at her home in Florida talking on the phone as she was communicating with anyone. She was finally recognized for her technological contributions in 1997, 56 years after her invention. What did she say? It's about time. Her health and eyesight continued to deteriorate, and on January 19, 2000, 85-year-old Hedy Lamar died in her sleep. The theories behind her frequency-hopping technology, however, are now used. They control satellites. They operate cell phones. They run Wi-Fi. They run our GPS. All these things that are backbones to our modern society. These things that bring me to you today. So thank you so much for that, Hedy. As far as media goes, um, I, there are two books that I would recommend. The first is Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, The Most Beautiful Woman in the World by Richard Rode. Uh, it's a pretty fast read. It was very well written. The second I would re- recommend is for kids. Um, it's Hetty Lamar and the Secret Communication System by Trina Robbins, illustrated by Cynthia Martin. It is a graphic nonfiction So if you like graphic novels, like I do, you might really like this one too, or at least your kids will. Now, there is an autobiography that was ghostwritten called Ecstasy and Me, My Life as a Woman. (sighs) Read it because it would be in um, as close to her voice as you could probably get. However, bear in mind that it's gone through the filter of her, uh, so the facts might be a little skewed, but... As a read, it, you might really enjoy it. Websites, there is hedylamar.org. We'll link you up on our show notes. Um, it's got a plethora of information and pictures and links to even more um, about the life of Hedy Lamar, who was known in her lifetime for her beauty. But now we go even deeper and remember her for her intelligence. This is Susan. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, Please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Follow us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. But hey, we have a surprise for you. Guess what? We have a brand new Zazzle store. We'd love for you to come visit us there. Simply go to the website, thehistorychicks.com, and click on the link on the sidebar to take you to our fabulous merchandise. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad you're here.